Have you ever felt like your doctor wasn't taking your symptoms seriously or frustrated that there wasn't a solution for your problem? Unfortunately, you're not alone. Many patients feel dismissed and unheard in the healthcare system, which can lead to missed or incorrect diagnoses, as well as prolonged pain or discomfort. Our guest today is a practicing physician and an author who will share insights on why this happens and how patients can get the care they need. We'll also discuss how patients may dismiss the healthcare system and the real consequences of doing so. Hi, I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I am so glad you're here for a truly impactful episode. Just a reminder that the information you'll hear is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be used as medical advice. And before we get started, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter at beyondthepapergown.com so you can be informed of our new podcasts and articles and other useful health and wellness information. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you enjoy this episode, please do rate us. It really does make a difference. So now that we're done with the housekeeping, let's get started. Today, it is my honor and pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Angela Marshall, who is founder of Comprehensive Women's Health Incorporated, which is a primary care practice for women. She is a board-certified internist and fellow of the American College of Physicians, and she has repeatedly been named a top doctor by the Washingtonian Magazine and a contributing health expert on CNN, Fox News, PBS NewsHour, and OWN. She is currently the chair of the board of directors for the Black Women's Health Imperative and is the newly elected president of the Montgomery County Medical Society in Maryland. Welcome, Angela. And I can call you Angela because you are a good friend, and we happen to sit on the board of the Black Women's Health Imperative together, which I am so honored to be a part of. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me, Mitzi. I'm so absolutely honored to be here. I have always admired you and and your work. Um, You are an internal medicine physician, adult medicine, who focuses on women. You are now the author of what I think is going to be a real game changer in so many ways. And that is the book that you have called Dismissed. It's not only an important book, but as I read it, it's obviously a very personal book. So could you just share with us what inspired you to write that and what you hope folks will get out of it? Yeah, well, so, you know, Dismissed. And when I think about kind of what motivated me to write it, It really is a culmination of a lifetime of challenging experiences in healthcare. And so I start with the fact that growing up, I grew up with a single mom, very limited resources. And I don't share this very often, but I grew up without health insurance. And, uh, you know, after I got my usual vaccines for school, um, I never went to the doctor. And so at the age of about eight, I remember I was having these horrible headaches and uh, my mom finally, you know, scraped together, you know, the, the money it took to go see an outpatient doctor for headaches. And 
you know, he saw me and I don't remember much of an exam or much of an interview or, you know, but at the end he said, there's nothing wrong with her. She's perfectly fine. <laughs> and so it wasn't until I attended medical school that I learned that I suffer from migraines. Mm. And that was my first uh, encounter of, of being dismissed. And I think that uh, experience really uh, resonated with me as an eight-year-old young girl that, um, you know, maybe that I wasn't as important or what have you. And, you know, it wasn't until later that I realized that that was my first experience of feeling dismissed. Yeah. And just for the audience, I'm sure that many people know what migraines are, but these are not your average run-of-the-mill headaches. They can be quite debilitating and, yes. and really cause a lot of problems. And, and, and if I can just add that the book, one of the things that inspired me to write the book, it was not just my personal experiences, but it was hearing the stories of so many of my patients. And, you know, year for years, I've heard of patients, you know, in fact, that's one of the reasons why they've come to me as a, as a woman physician is that they felt dismissed by their um, prior physicians, or they felt like, you know, no one listened to them. I hear that often that they didn't feel listened to. And so um, this work is about, uh, you know, their their stories as well as my own. I think that women uh, maybe disproportionately feel dismissed. And maybe that's, I know that because I am a woman and have been dismissed myself or feel like I have been. Um, but as, as you said, having patients come in and just, you know, saying, you know, no one's ever heard me or I've, I've been told that this was all in my head. But um, just to underline that uh, there was a study published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine that found among 800 patients, 30%, almost a third, reported feeling dismissed by their physicians. And then when we get to women, 29% of women ages 18 to 64 reported that their doctor had dismissed their concerns during that time. And that was um, a survey done by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And that was compared to 21% of men. So there's still a significant amount of men that feel dismissed. It's just, I think, disproportionate. Exactly. Um, let's talk a little bit about why you think that is. Well, interestingly, I feel like when you feel like you've been dismissed in a medical situation, you know, sometimes it's hard to understand why, right? So me as a black woman, one of the first things I think of is because I'm black, you know? Um, you know, sometimes it's our, our race, sometimes it's our uh, gender, sometimes it's the doctor was having a bad day, you know? <laughs> and so, so we, don't, we don't always know why that is. But what resonates with us is what usually is what usually resonates with us is what makes us different, right? And you know, our brains try to explain why we didn't get what we thought we should. And so I think that's where the bias piece comes in because and that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to make this about medical racism because as a black person, you know, 
A lot of times I think it's race, it's race related. But as a woman, I can tell you that it's not <laughs> because I see women all day long and women tell me the same thing, right? And I have patients with disabilities who, you know, they're not seen, they're not heard. Um, I have patients who are overweight who feel that the doctors blame everything on their weight, you know, and so it goes way beyond that. And so when I told this story, I didn't want it to just be about me and my experience, but I wanted to make sure and cover others' perspectives in this book as well, because everyone deserves a voice and everyone deserves to be treated well and everyone deserves to be seen. I think at the very least, we feel being dismissed is an inconvenience or a frustration, but it can have real significant clinical consequences. And you actually have a number of examples of um, how bias, racism, sexism really impacted some of your patients. Can you draw upon one or two of those stories and, and tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, there are a couple patient examples that I share. Um, one is of a woman who um, was having shortness of breath. She happened to be African-American, um, overweight, and suffered from anxiety. So she had mental illness, you know, overweight, African-American, and a woman. And she was having shortness of breath without chest pain. And she had seen a cardiologist and, uh, and she had risk, risk factors. She had uh, really uh, severe diabetes and risk factors for heart disease. And I was very concerned about uh, a potential cardiac cause or heart, heart problem uh, that was causing her shortness of breath. And so I sent her to her cardiologist. This is someone that she had an, a longstanding relationship with. And he told her, you're fine. You just need to exercise more and you need to lose weight. And so she came back to me and I said, well, no, we can't exercise until we get your heart figured out. And so I sent her to another doctor. This was a, these are two male doctors, by the way. So the second doctor I sent her to was also a male. He told her, she just needed to relax. And he recommended transcendental meditation for her to relax because he thought her shortness of breath was from anxiety. And that wasn't good enough for me. So I then sent her to a third cardiologist. And this time I sent her to a black woman. And I called the doctor beforehand and said, hey, this patient is having shortness of breath. She has diabetes, hypertension, all these risk factors for heart disease. Can you please, you know, take a look at her? I said, I think she needs a catheterization because she'd had a, a stress test, but those aren't always um, as, uh, as conclusive as sure. Uh, catheterization. Sure enough, she says, absolutely. She needs a cath. And so she took the patient to uh, the catheterization and found that one of her arteries was over 95% blocked. So if she had exercised like that 
first doctor recommended, she probably wouldn't have made it. And so, you know, that's just one of many stories that I've heard. I also think about people like Dr. Susan Moore, who was, um, you know, her story went uh, viral um, during COVID. She actually had um, it's, um, uploaded a video onto social media because she wasn't getting the care that she deserved. And um, she also happened to be one of my high school classmates. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, she passed away uh, from complications of COVID. But the fact that she felt that she wasn't treated, and in her case, she says, I contend if I were not black, this would not be happening, you know? And so just the thought of her having that feeling in her last days, it just, you know, sticks with me and resonates with me. And, you know, this is why, one of the reasons why I continue to do this work. Um, I had my own um, uh, situation as well horrible experience, one of the worst days of my life, in fact, the worst day of my life, of losing my own child um, after being dismissed by a doctor. And it's just, you know, when these things happen, when you're in your most vulnerable state, you know, because in healthcare, when you go into the exam room, you know, you have to share personal information, you're often not feeling well, and to top all that off, half the time you have to tr- take your clothes off too, you know, so it's just one of the most vulnerable times um, for for patients, and, and when you're, you know, in such a vulnerable state, and to have people not listen to you or dismiss you, it's just very hurtful. Absolutely. Well, let me say, I think I've said this to you, but I'm so sorry for both of those losses, both of your um, colleague as well as, as your son. Um, you are very honest in your discussion about that episode. And would you mind, because I think people are going to wonder um, a little bit more about those details, if you wouldn't mind sharing that. Yeah, so, uh, and, you know, it's taken 20 years to be able to talk about it um, and lots of therapy. (laughs) Um, But um, I had my second son in my fourth year of medical school, and he was born with some congenital abnormalities, uh, but he was progressing well. And at four months of age, um, he had a doctor's appointment one morning. And, um, but when he woke up, he just didn't look like himself. I mean, he looked really sick. He was breathing really fast. And I had never seen this before, but his eyes were crossing in Mm -hmm. just different directions. And so I immediately called the hospital and I was thankful that he had an appointment that day, but I called the hospital and said, Hey, we're on our way. He's not well. It's something is very, very wrong. Please be ready. Right. And so got him to the hospital and, um, you know, immediately I felt like the doctor didn't share the same concern that I did. I was, you know, just really emphatic, like, hey, you know, here, we're here. What's going on here? Find out, you know, here, help him. Sure. 
And Understandably from so. The, right. And from the very beginning, he's just moving slowly. And, you know, and finally he says, well, we're going to admit him to the hospital. I think his electrolytes are off. We'll get him some fluids and tank him up and he'll be back to his self in, in no time. The problem was that the hospital was full and the wait we were waiting for a bed. And so after about maybe 15 minutes or so, I said, hey, you know, aren't you going to start treating him now? Because, you know, I don't know how much longer he can breathe at this high rate. He was breathing literally at 100 times a minute. Mm. And I knew from my pediatrics rotation that in children, their respiratory rate is a big indicator of distress. And, you know, he just didn't seem uh, phased. And he says, well, no, we're going to wait for a bed. Then he went, went away. He kept going away. He kept leaving the room. That was the other thing. And I kept having the nurse call him back. What are you going to do? What, you know? And finally, he, he tried to reassure me. He says, look, I've been doing this for over 30 years. He's going to be fine. We're going to get him fluids and he'll be back to himself in no time. And because I was actually about to take him downstairs in the hospital to the emergency room because they were moving so slowly. That last bit of reassurance it actually made me even second guess myself because then I thought, well, geez, I even felt a little embarrassed. I was like, oh, well, you know, am I being too hysterical here? Um, you know, have I overreacted? You know, um, and I, I second guessed myself. Um, and then he walked out of the room one last time and the nurse was still there and Within minutes, my son coded. Which means his heart stopped and his breathing His stopped. heart stopped. He stopped breathing. Um, the nurse and I had to start performing CPR in the hospital until the, the, the team, the medical team arrived. And um, it was just, my son didn't make it. So sorry. And um, I really feel like he didn't make it because he was dismissed, you know, and I was dismissed. And, um, you know, and it, it, as if that weren't bad enough, um, about a month later, um, I had to go back and finish my last. Uh, rotation of medical school, which happened to be radiology. Well, there was one, there was only one location for the radiology rotation, which happened to be in the same hospital where I had lost my son. And that was the last month I needed for graduation. Mm. And I can remember the first day of that rotation, sitting on the bench in front of the hospital thinking, I don't have to do this. I could just quit. You know, I really wanted to quit. But sure. then I thought, I thought, how could I best honor my son? 
And the answer was, I can be a better doctor, one that listens to their patients. And that is what inspired me to go back in there every day for a month and finish medical school. Thank goodness that you did. And it also, I know, inspired you to write this book, which will help so many people. And that couldn't be a more important legacy. And thank you for sharing that very personal story. Um, you know, as you were talking, obviously, I've not experienced, you know, such a, an extreme situation. But I think so many people listening could see themselves in parts of those and having had that experience. And you talk about, um, you know, in the book, you do look at it from a doctor's perspective as well. And it dawns on me, you know, there's a lot of reasons to busy, you know, especially now with, you know, what's been going on with the health system. There's too many, there's too little staff, there's too little support. But at the end of the day, it's really about compassion and empathy and understanding. The other piece of it, as you well know, and I do too, that medical training is grueling. Most of us went in to help people, right? I think there's very few people that did it for the money, certainly not anymore, right? Not but, anymore. <laughs> um, but you know, I think we all come in wanting to do good and, and do better and, and all of that. But yet, as you point out in the book, and as we know, it's a long road. There's a, not a lot of sleep. There's, it sometimes feels abusive. So it almost takes that compassion and empathy out to a certain extent. What is your thoughts about how medical education can address any of this? Well, I'm glad you uh, pointed that out, uh, Mitzi, you know, because you know all too well, we're programmed in medical school to, you know, put our personal uh, needs aside and, you know, be, <laughs> be on at the beck and call of our patients and to um, just uh, really give everything for their uh, benefit. Um, oftentimes our basic needs are not met, uh, you know, even in the you know, typical work day, you know, having to decide, you know, sh should I go to the bathroom now or wait until <laughs> the next patient, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, these little basic need things, you know, they tend to get pushed aside. And one of the things that uh, my colleagues said to me is that we're indoctrinated. And I had never thought about it that way. Like we're indoctrinated to work, 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 you know, kind of like soldiers, I guess. Uh, we're indoctr indoctrinated to work grueling hours and to work when we're sick. Even the word to, indoctrinated, doctor, yeah. almost. <laughs> Very close. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And But I feel like we're indoctrinated to, um, you know, ignore our basic needs and to push, 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 even in the face of, um, you know, our own, um, you know, challenges. And I think, that doesn't make for the best care. 
if someone who's listening here, again, resonates with this and says, okay, I think I was dismissed or not listened to, I mean, you have to accept what you're feeling and and honor that. But I also worry a little bit that we go immediately to that if we hear something that we don't like. It's really hard because you do look to those physicians, to other healthcare providers, because they have the knowledge, we have the knowledge supposedly. Um, but at the same time, there's so much frustration about feeling like there's got to be an answer. Why am I dealing with this? And what we know in terms of women's health, which is, you know, both of our focus, um, things like endometriosis, we don't have a good solution because it really hasn't been researched up until recently. And there really hasn't been any movement in it in decades, right? Even heart disease in women, we haven't had the research. How do you know if that's the problem? Or it may be that the, that the again, there's that, that bias going on. What would be your recommendations for folks as they feel this and think about how they might want to act? Well, for one, I think we all have to work towards um, promoting more research for women, for minorities, for for every for every segment of society. We we need more research, especially though for women. We need more women in research because as you mentioned, there's so little, you know, they'll do a study on men for a new drug and then all of a sudden, you know, prescribe it to women. But we all know that women are physiologically different than men, even at the molecular, at the DNA level, we're different. And so it's not enough to just say, oh, it worked on all these men. So now we're going to prescribe it to women. (laughs) So we as women really need to um, demand uh, more women um, in research, in medical research. And also knowing um, for those who, you know, question, you know, us being so different, we have different symptoms for everything, right? For heart disease, you know, men have one set of symptoms, women typically have different symptoms. And so sometimes if the male symptoms, you know, is the reference and you present with quote unquote female or women's <laughs> symptoms, you know, you're get, you may be dismissed because it's not following the textbook uh, um, uh, script for what you should be feeling. And I, I just feel that dismissal stems from, oftentimes, stems from not listening, not believing, or not caring, or a combination of those, which, you know, none of those are acceptable. And so I think the most important thing we can do as women is to find providers. And I say providers because that may be a physician. It may be a nurse practitioner or maybe a physician assistant. I'm a big believer of advanced practitioners because we need them to extend our services. Um, but finding providers who are going to listen to you, finding people who hear you, finding people who see you is the most important, um, the more, most important thing you can do right now. I do dream of a time when a patient can go into any healthcare system or any healthcare setting and we have 
such decorum and professionalism and empathy across the board that they don't have to worry about not being cared for. You know, it's, it's just absolutely essential that we do something to fix our healthcare system. And I think it starts in medical school and in the training of medical students. And so we have to start early, um, just teaching um, the importance of empathy and compassion and the importance of hearing our patients and not just, you know, being able to treat people compassionately, even when their symptoms may fall outside of the textbook uh, presentation, you know, because I think that's where a lot of um, disbelief comes in. You know, I've literally seen doctors with their eyes roll back in their head, you know, because someone has some, you know, some symptoms that they can't explain. And so we just really have to learn how to, um, you know, be more empathic and compassionate. And just because it's not in the textbook doesn't mean that what they're feeling is not real. Absolutely. And I, you know, as you were talking, I have so many uh, personal examples of how that is. I think about my patients with fibromyalgia, for example. It's a syndrome because it didn't have, you know, any kind of laboratory test attached to it. But yet these patients were coming in with the same symptoms. You know, and when I, I was shows you how old I am. When I was in medical school, it was called empty nest syndrome because Mm -hmm. women over the age of 40 were more likely to have it. Their kids had gone away. They were depressed. They were tired. Well, that's not true. You know, I mean, it may be true, but that's not fibromyalgia. That's not what causes fibromyalgia. (laughs) And, um, And I think now there's much more, now there's much more information about, you know, the mechanism of it. But I had so many patients who, you know, their doctors prior to me didn't believe it, you know, just dismissed them. And, 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 and it's a very debilitating um, syndrome and has uh, significant consequences. Absolutely. I'm trying to think about our listeners and they're saying, okay, I, I resonate with what's going on. What should I do? Should I confront my physician and say, hey, I don't feel like you're listening to me. I think that there's a real, you know, as you talked about, a real fear that that might alienate the doctor and then impact on your health care going forward. So, and if you don't have a choice, perhaps, maybe because your network doesn't cover changing to another doctor or you can't find a doctor in that network, what would be your recommendation to patients in terms of getting their health care needs met? That's a great question. And one of the things that I recommend for patients who want to advocate for themselves in those moments is to share their feelings and not accuse because that can be inflammatory sometimes. But if I say something like, I'm feeling very vulnerable right now and I'm in a lot of pain and I'm feeling like you're not hearing me or I'm not feeling like you're understanding the degree of my pain. Saying it that way, I know you have a lot of patience to see, but I'm really struggling. I'm really suffering from this. And I don't feel like you're understanding how much I'm suffering. I think that's a good start. You know, in counseling, they talk about using I statements, right? I feel this way. And so I think first by sharing feelings, 
that's the first step. But more importantly, it's important to evaluate whether or not your doctor or your provider is a good fit for you. If it's someone who doesn't believe you or doesn't seem to care or tries to contradict you when you say you have these, say, well, that doesn't make sense. There's very subtle ways that people make you feel a certain way. It's important to really have a good feeling, a warm and fuzzy, or at least a level of trust with the provider that you're seeing. And so I just can't emphasize that enough. I think it's just really important to make sure that the person that you're seeing is, is human and they see you and they hear you. You talked about to, um, something that I think is almost, if not a red flag, a pink flag. And that's like, well, this doesn't fit. Well, as we just talked about before, it may be because we don't have the information yet. And uh, so I, I think if someone says that, to me, that's a, a non-starter. Oh, yeah. A great example of that is I have, like, sometimes when we start people on medications, right? So we usually try to explain potential side effects. And I always call them potential because I say, you know, most people don't have any side effects on this medicine, but here are some of the potential side effects. Well, sometimes people have side effects that aren't on that list, right? So what do you do with that? So sometimes I've heard of patients going to physicians and they say, oh, I'm having, let's say, you know, headaches since I started taking that medicine. And hear the doctor say, well, it's not because of the medicine, because headaches, that's not, that's not one of the side effects of this medicine. Well, you know, how do we know that it's not causing headaches in that person? And so one of the things that I do is I, first of all, I believe them like, hey, you started taking this medicine and right after taking it, you started getting headaches and you weren't having headaches before, then it's probably from the medicine. So let's stop the medicine, see if the headaches go away. And if we really want to be sure, let's wait a while and restart it and see if the headaches come back. Then chances are it's from the medicine. I don't need the, the list of side effects from the manufacturer to convince me of that, right? But that takes believing the patient. And so... I think so often, um, you know, clinicians, you know, we're, we're so adherent to what's in the literature. And I, and I don't get me wrong, I'm a firm supporter and believer of evidence-based medicine. We have to follow the evidence, but we also have to have common sense and we also have to be human and understand that, you know, not everything is listed in the fine print. And humble. Right. And have some and degree humble. of humility. Humility. Because, you know, going back to, you know, uh, women and, and research, 80% of the medicines that have been withdrawn were because of adverse effects in women. And so, because we didn't check, right? But that leads yep. me to the next question that I know that you, and I love that you addressed this. So I remember, I'll give an example. I'd have patients who would take all these supplements that were not FDA approved, were not studied, whatever, but they wouldn't take the prescribed medications that had been, again, gone through the FDA because they didn't trust the FDA. They didn't trust the pharma companies. And there's 
some some basis for that to a certain extent. I just gave you the data. So now fast forward, we've got COVID. We're making the, you know, we're finding the science as we're going along. We're doing the research at the same time that it's, you know, we're learning and, and all of that. Um, but there didn't seem to be a real appetite for understanding, for example, that data's our, our our information is going to change, and therefore we're going to need to change our processes uh, to the extent, and then that was, became politicized, that, you know, the medical community was not to be trusted, the research committee community was not to be trusted, and so now, we, then we had all of these alternative um, remedies that were absolutely harmful, uh, but adopted because of a mistrust of the health system. I know that you were on the front lines. I had colleagues that were on the front lines, literally saving lives and um, sacrificing, you know, their health and well-being in order to, to be there. Uh, so talk a little bit about that and how, what you think is uh, the right approach. Yeah, and that, that's a great point, uh, Mitzi. And, you know, COVID accentuated so much, you know, it just really amplified so many problems that were already percolating in the healthcare system. And um, I agree that uh, the medical mistrust uh, really has led to a great uh, disengagement of the patients. And I see it a lot in the African American community, community in particular, feeling, you know, when you feel like you're not listened to, not cared for, not believed, um, then, you know, it makes you want to, you know, go to your own devices, you know, and natural remedies and, and things like that. Treat yourself. DIY health is what I call it. And, and that's not good for anyone, right? And so I think as a profession, the, the medical field as a whole, as a profession, we have to do a better job of building our patients' trust again. We have to start all over. We have got to work on trust building. And part of that has to, part of that involves, you know, um, being empathic and compassionate and bringing professionalism back to the practice of medicine. And I'm not saying that we're not professional as a group or as, a, as, a, as an industry, but the system has been so stressed over the years that we haven't been operating at our best selves. You know, we haven't been delivering care, um, you know, the way that uh, it should be delivered. And you know, as a result, the patients have, you know, disengaged somewhat. They've lost trust. They've lost faith in the system. And so I think we've got to do, a, it's on us. It's on physicians and healthcare workers. We've got to do a better job of rebuilding trust and, and repairing the system so that it is worthy of patients, you know, coming back in a more engaged, in a more trusting way. I so agree with you, but I have to say that I would also like to add that it would help if the outside forces wouldn't keep throwing grenades into that. And that's really, so true. You know, mess yeah. with people's heads. 
So true. And, you know, and here's, this is, that's a great point because it reminds me of there's a disrespect of physicians now that we didn't see before. And not to say that we want to go back to the patriarchal uh, God complex, where, right. Yeah. yeah. Where doctors <laughs> says do this and by golly, you better do it. No, yeah. not that. That was, that was the pendulum was all the way, you know, on the other end of that. But, um, but now people feel that they can get their healthcare on Google and TikTok and social media. And, you know, they feel more empowered because they have more information, right? But they don't understand that the information that's on Google and social media and whatnot, even these AI new chat GPT, we're still years away, you know, from being able to practice medicine through an electronic machine learning algorithm, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> I don't and, think that that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to that point, and I think you talk about this in the book, some of that technology itself is biased. You know, we it always is. hear about, you know, garbage in, garbage out to a certain extent. And unfortunately, that also undermines maybe trust. Exactly. Yeah, there's certain things like facial recognition and um, things that are used to treat uh, or used to diagnose dark skin versus, you know, there's more mistakes, if you will. Um, but then also, even there have been AI programs used to optimize scheduling. And they um, tend to um, almost like penalize people who are um, repeat offenders of being late or being, you know, missing appointments and things like that. And people who have transportation issues or people in poverty or people who have other social factors that affect their ability to get health care, um, they are disproportionately more likely to be uh, eliminated from these scheduling apps. And so those issues, yes, AI uh, can be biased and we have to be aware of that too. So much work to do, so little time. Um, <laughs> so you end your book saying that inclusion leads to life. What do you mean by that? Well, let me start with this. I had the honor of practicing under a physician who was and is my healthcare shero. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know if she'll ever hear this, but <laughs> her name is Dr. Catherine Lucy. She was my very first uh, physician example. She's the woman who showed me how to check a blood pressure. And there was something very different about Dr. Lucy in that she was so incredibly professional, but she was just so incredibly compassionate. She treated everyone equally. She knew enough to um, know the patients who may have struggled to get in or people who've taken several buses to get into the clinic. She didn't mind that they were a little late and it seemed as if she would give the folks who were disadvantaged a little more care and attention. She just had a way of connecting with everyone. She saw everyone. She'd look at them in their eyes and, well, how are you doing on your blood pressure medicine? And how, you know, it was just a, a, a really um, incredible um, example to see. 
And I would love to get back to that style of healthcare delivery. And I have a bold uh, goal to to have that return, have professionalism return to medicine where doctors, you know, not only care, but we show the patients that we care, where patients feel valued and they can go in any healthcare system in the country and still feel valued. They don't have to worry about being mistreated or not heard or not believed because we all have, you know, certain standards of, and decorum that we operate by. And so that is what I would like to see for the field of medicine. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, train our new providers and I mentor students and even high school students. We mentor, trying to encourage them to <laughs> go to medical school. Uh, but, you know, that's my vision. And I just hope that we can all work together um, towards that end. Beautifully said. Dr. Angela Marshall internist, physician leader, and now author of, of, again, an extremely impactful book. And again, I know will have such a huge effect on both patients and providers. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. The important book we've been discussing is Dismissed, Tackling the Biases that Undermine Our Healthcare. And it's co-authored by Dr. Angela Marshall and Kathy Palikoff. You can purchase the book on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and we'll include the links to both in the notes for this podcast. Our podcast was produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian. Thank you for joining us, and be well.